The views expressed on this show by guests and the host on issues outside of the 9-11 controlled demolition evidence are the opinions of those individuals alone and do not necessarily reflect those of architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of 9-11 Freefall. I'm the host, as always, Andy Steele, and today we got a special treat today. First time this guy's ever been here on the show, even after all these years. Signed the petition a few years ago. You saw him at our event, which was called Forbidden Truth. His name is Brian Thompson. He has an undergraduate degree in civil engineering from Marquette University and a master's degree in fire protection engineering from Worcester Polytechnic Institute. He holds professional licenses in both fire protection engineering and civil engineering in multiple states, and he practices in fire protection engineering design and consulting. He is a signatory to AE 911 Truth Petition, calling for a new investigation into the destruction of the Twin Towers and World Trade Center 7 on 9-11. And as I had said earlier, he was a presenter at our anniversary event. So let's go ahead and bring Brian Thompson in. Brian. Welcome to 9-11 Freefall. Thank you for having me, Andy. All right, so it's your first time on the show, Rite of Passage, the initiation for coming on to Freefall. We're going to ask you some basic questions to see what brought you here into the circle. Tell us first, before we get into the 9-11 stuff, what drew you into engineering in the first place? Yeah, I think I was just a kid that always liked you know, playing the Legos. And in high school, I was trying to decide, do I want to be an architect or do I want to be an engineer? And I kind of learned that architects are more of the dreamers and engineers are more of the kind of tend to be rooted in, in facts. And so I went to the engineering side. Uh, I was also working with the uh, local volunteer fire department and the fire marshal told me about this kind of emerging discipline of fire protection engineering. So I ended up putting my civil engineering and fire protection experience together and getting a master's then in fire protection engineering. That's awesome. You know, there was some author, it might have been Vonnegut, but I can't remember who specifically, but said that uh, the volunteer fire department is a proof that Americans deep down are great people. You know, the volunteer fire department willing to go, you know, drop everything you're doing at the current moment and put out a fire in somebody else's house. And uh, I like to see us doing more, having more of those kinds of services here in this country. It'd be cool if we had like a volunteer ambulance service or something like that out there. I don't know. Dream big. Um, so that is awesome. And of course, your study of engineering is what led you towards coming to us inevitably. Uh, where were you on 9-11? Tell us the story of how you heard the news of what was going on. Right. So at the time I was working as a civil engineer, but living at the local firehouse. Uh, so in exchange for a place to stay, I'd have a duty shift every third night. Uh, that morning, the uh, another firefighter at the firehouse was like, look what's happening in New York. Uh, and I watched, you know, one of the towers. Um, you know, I think we actually saw the, the second target hit on TV there. Um, our department 
is basically a suburb of Seattle. And so on their days off, Seattle firemen and Seattle firefighters would be working in our department. So after seeing what was happening and not knowing, you know, was there more that was going to happen around the country? Are the Seattle firefighters going to get recalled? So then our district would be left with limited manpower. I decided to not go to work that day and basically stayed. Uh, I moved, I was at a satellite station. So I moved into the headquarters station uh, to basically help staff that for the day. So, yeah, and, you know, there's so much was up in the air on that day. We didn't know if there was going to be other airplanes crashing into other buildings. At one point, they were confused about the number of airplanes missing and reporting, like, 12 or whatever. And we know that that was just early reporting at this point and, and uh, <clears throat> not true. But on that morning, who knew, right? So, you know, we could envision disasters happening all over this country into the late hours of that day. I mean, four airplanes uh, crashed into something on that day. So for all we know, it could have been 12 or 20 or, or whatever. They were completely, uh, we were completely surprised by everything. At least the American people were some questions about who else was, uh, at higher levels, but we don't get into that. So you watched the towers come down, I assume, as everybody did in this country. What were you thinking as they came down? Did anything, did any, uh, safeties click in your brain? Were there any red lights that started flashing before your eyes uh, saying this is impossible or did you just buy it along with everybody else? Yeah, no, at, at the time I was focused more on, okay, if that happened here, you know, how would, you know, what's, what am I going to do? Am I going to be, you know, working 48 hours straight? Am I going to be staying with our district or am I going to be going into the city if something like that happens there? So I, I wasn't really in analyze mode. I was more in trying to, just okay. If that incident happened here, how would how would we respond? So that 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 was more my mindset. Um, so I, I I think I do remember then when Tower Seven came down later that evening, kind of thinking, well, that's kind of curious. Um, but yeah, it it was something where yeah, there I, I think there was uncertainty, but. Um, yeah, I was basically just trying to go with the flow, so to speak, in that moment. As I think most people do, especially in an emergency, and you are a first responder, maybe not at 9-11, but on the day of 9-11, not knowing what could else also be going on there. And when you're a first responder, the time uh, is is one for such that you have to follow orders, do what you have to do to deal with the situation. The analyzing comes later uh, in many cases, but that is uh, what you are supposed to do. Just like those guys at Pearl Harbor were being attacked. All you need to do is, is fight back and try to defend the base here. So a lot of people didn't think that much about it until years later when we saw the videos of Building 7 coming down again, when we had time to look at it more uh retrospectively and realize that this did not make any sense. So I guess this kind of leads to the next question. You were occupied on September 11th. When did you actually begin to relook at this incident? When did you begin to first question why these buildings came down? So it was a year later on the first anniversary that I was in the master's program at WPI 
and I was sitting in Professor Barnett's building fire safety class. Um, Dr. Barnett was one of the members of the FEMA investigation team. And so on 9-11-2002, he took the opportunity to show us photographs that he had collected and talk about his experience, uh, you know, going to basically the dump where the metal had been moved. And he talked about how it was unusual to be doing a forensic investigation at other than the location where the incident occurred. Mm. So that, that was one of those nuances that I began to be exposed to. And he also talked about how FEMA kind of developed, uh, you know, theories of trying to, you know, explain what could have initiated that. Um, and then he also talked about how the WPI lab had analyzed the metal because the way that the metal was found was different than the way metal is typically encountered um, from a fire-induced collapse so or fire-induced failure. So, Very interesting. And, of course, if people aren't aware, uh, Brian covered it a little bit, but uh, Jonathan Barnett was involved with the FEMA investigation. I believe it's him who documented the Swiss cheese steel found in Appendix C of that report, something that was critical, whether uh, he realized that we would still be talking about it here in 2022, I don't know, but it was definitely critical, an important piece of evidence that we continue to cite here at AE 9-11 Truth. Uh, and he was also in the video that Ted Walter played during our anniversary event because NIST, uh, in this whole request for correction back and forth and the lawsuit and everything, <clears throat> they're talking about a particular piece of steel. And they're saying, we don't know that that came from World Trade Center 7, even though every scientist has basically acknowledged that it had to have come from Building 7. And then there's a video of Jonathan Barnett with the steel saying, well, this had to come from World Trade Center 7 because it's not the same size as the stuff that came from the Twin Towers. So there you go. Jonathan Barnett continues to be important, whether he seeks to be or not. Here he is being thrust into this debate. Um, Okay, so you begin to question it. How long did it take you to basically come to the conclusion that you should sign this petition because there's major problems with this. What kind of information other than what you were uh, witnessing in Barnett's class really brought you to the table here? Right. So his class was basically, here's our ideas. We can't really explain it. And NIST is going to come up with a report. And then when this report came out and contradicted some of the theories that my professor had said seemed more reasonable. I was like, okay, well now I'm kind of stuck and how do I deal with these diverging views? Uh, and then I think I came across the 8911 Truth site and looked at some of, some of the material that, that the organization had available and started to kind of do my own digging. Um, you know, and then looking at other independent, uh, researchers and what they had on on some of the other events from that day. And so I think that that helped, you know, kind of get me into it. Uh, and then a few years later, there was a Society of Fire Protection Engineers conference, and Professor Barnett was there. And so then I went and talked to him just kind of at one of the breaks to try and understand, you know, hey, now that this NIST report came out, that seems to contradict 
what your FEMA team found. What, what do you think about that? And he explained that he doesn't interpret it as a, uh, such a, a disparity that, that they can go together. And I said, well, with regard to, for example, World Trade Center 7, the idea that NIST says the heat pushed the expanding steel off the seat, but the fires were out. He said, yes, it, you know, we're starting to understand more how steel can contract after a fire. So, you know, perhaps instead of an expansion mechanism, it was a contraction mechanism, but ultimately we were left with a single slender column that collapsed, just like they said. And so that, that left me, well, okay, well, even if that's true, that's not what NIST said. So NIST said it was heating and expansion. So if, if what we're saying is, well, then it must have been cooling and contraction, that's the official report still needs to be revisited and revised. Um, and then I had opportunity to go and have dinner with Dr. Holsey up in Fairbanks when he was working on his report and kind of asked him, you know, what, what he was working on and then became even more convinced that, that, you know, idea of a single slender column and looking at what his team came up with as far as the model of the collapse of Trade Center 7 versus what NIST, you know, shows us with their initial collapse of World Trade Center 7 and the model, it, it became clear that regardless of whether the beam was heated and expanded or cooled and contracted, that that single slender column would not have led to the, the global, you know, freefall of, of Tower 7 uniformly as we saw. Yeah, that's common sense. Yeah, I got a question just hearing that. I'm not an engineer. I know that beams can expand in heat and apparently they can contract in cooler temperatures, but these beams obviously were at a certain size while the building was still standing since I believe the earlier mid eighties built this is building seven. Uh, if they had expanded and then cooled down and contracted, were they, are they going to contract to a size smaller than the, what, what they originally were? I mean, you're not going to go beyond, you're not going to go lower than whatever the temperature was that day on September 11th in New York City. It's not like an Arctic blast swept through New York City suddenly, uh, after the event was almost over. So it, it just, you know, and maybe it doesn't make sense to you either, but can you just explain this a little bit more to me, what he is trying to say? Cause even if it contracts, all it's going to do seemingly to me as a layman is go back to its original size. Yeah, so it it is an emerging, um, I guess, understanding of of the engineering field. Uh, it it wasn't something that was discussed when I was in school, um, but an associate in our office has talked about that. Oh yeah, they talked about that in school. So it, and I can picture, um, kind of looking at steel and the stress strain diagram and how, um, you know, there can be heat strengthened steel. So the properties of steel do change with, you know, changes in temperature. Um, certainly the hottest New York day did not get the steel as hot as it would have gotten from a fire. Um, but yeah, that's, that's an area of, you know, <laughs> steel molecular performance that I'm not familiar with. Well, I, you know, and again, I didn't study this in school. I'm just trying to play some common sense here because, you know, okay, it gets cool and it contracts. Well, how are you getting the girder pushed off the seat if it contracts? It's going the other, the other way. 
So, I mean, and I guess what I'm trying to point out here, with all due respect to Mr. Barnett, I, he's being cordial, saying, oh, our findings at FEMA and NIST report can jive with each other. Nobody wants to challenge this official story except us. I get it. Uh, but it doesn't make any sense. And But like what you said there, even if there's like a difference of opinion as to what caused this building to fall, it still shows that the NIST report is wrong. Therefore, rerun the analysis. Do your due diligence. Give the American people what they paid for through their tax dollars, which is an accurate report, which is what we didn't get from NIST. I just don't understand how contracting could could lead to the same scenario because now you got to explain why this girder got pushed off its seat and what led to this entire series of events inside the building to uh, make it come down. Interesting. Um, all right, so you started talking to Jonathan Barnett at least. When you kind of signed on to this being your position here, uh, the same as AEs, did you talk to other people as well? Have you gotten any backlash for speaking out about this? Right, so I was hesitant to be very vocal. I was happy to you know, put my name on on the list as a signer because I, I think there is enough cause to call for a new investigation. Um, but I was hesitant to be very vocal. Um, the, the discipline of fire protection engineering is a relatively small field. Um, and there's, you know, a certain amount of, you know, compensation that's gained in the private sector from, you know, public sector, uh, you know, contracts and projects. And so I had some fear of, you know, jeopardizing that. Um, but as, as time went on, you know, just seeing how there was, you know, I guess I felt still a need for, for somebody who was in fire protection engineering. I know there has been a couple that have been involved in, you know, explosive experts speak out that sort of thing. Um, but, uh, locally I decided, okay, on the 20th anniversary, I'm going to take on a project due diligence presentation and present it to my local chapter society of fire protection engineers. And I, uh, basically kind of was trying to figure out, you know, how much time are they going to allot me? And they said, well, this is an important topic. So, you know, we'll give you as much time as you need. I said, okay, then I'll talk about all three towers. Um, figuring that I could talk about the tower seven that was covered in the original project due diligence. Um, there's Ansgar Schneider's work on, you know, the tower one. And then I started to look and try and see what there was on tower two. Cause I had said I was going to talk about all three towers and, I could not find anything. So then I quickly tried to put together some initial analysis, trying to kind of use, you know, what David Chandler had done on Tower 7 and what Ansgar Schneider had done on Tower 1 and trying to apply that concept um, to, to the South Tower. And that's when I started to see things that I had not paid attention to before. Um so when I watched, you know, the collapse of Tower 2 on TV, you basically see, oh, well, there's this corner that appears to melt out, uh, the tower tilts, and then it collapses. And looking at it frame by frame, there's a lot more going on than 
that melting corner that kind of catches your eye. So, yeah, and I want to talk about that. I'm actually just looking for the visual aid I had planned and uh, didn't get on the computer before we started. Um, so we're going to get into that, but uh, let's talk a little bit right now about that presentation <clears throat> down there. Explain what the Society of Fire Protection Engineers is uh, and essentially what the presentation was like from a personal standpoint meaning what was uh the what was the general information you presented and what was the reception that you got right so when it was uh during you know covid in washington state so basically everything was virtual um which perhaps that made it easier because there wasn't a room of eyeballs looking at me um but i had talked to some of the attendees prior to the presentation. Um, and I knew one of them was a fire protection engineer with the Navy who is sitting on the authorities side of some of the contracts that I'm involved in. Uh, another one is a, uh, basically assistant fire marshal with a local city that we also have, you know, work there. And so I, I knew there was going to be, you know, kind of this fine line. How do I, you know, as an engineer, kind of stick to the facts and just talk about, you know, what I'm presenting. Um, one of the attendees, um, his background was uh, as a Marine, and then he went into work in the fire service. And his attitude has been, you know, just, you know, move on. We lost a lot of brothers, and we got to just you know, move forward. And my perspective is different than that. I, I feel that it's honoring to figure out what happened. Um, and so I was trying to balance those perspectives, uh, and ended up, you know, providing the, a presentation that was kind of a, a combination of, uh, a couple different presentations and then some of my, my own emerging work. And the feedback afterwards was that it was a, it came across as a combination of fact and truther, which I think is probably fair. Um, and then I was invited to give the presentation remotely at another SFPE chapter in another state. So I, I think all of those taken together, it, it it was, uh, it was well received. Um, I didn't get any negative feedback. So what do you think that says? Because if you watch Fox News or MSNBC or any of these, uh, Mickey Mouse news channels, you would think that the second you opened your mouth about this, you'd be laughed out of the place and nobody would be listening to you. You know, the, uh, rotten cabbage and eggs and all of that being thrown. But when you actually go down there, and this is the reports I'm getting from our engineers, people are actually interested, they're receptive, they get standing ovations in at least one case. Uh, so there seems to be a discrepancy here before, between what you hear from the mainstream media and what you actually experience in real life. What does that say to you? Yeah, I'm... I'm trying to figure out how society is changing. Um, similar to after 
9-11, the thought was, okay, we used to evacuate high-rise buildings, just kind of a few floors at a time. But after 9-11, how many people are going to stay in a high-rise building? If they fire, if they hear a fire alarm, they might all run out to the street. Um, with what's gone on, you know, in the you know, last couple of years with COVID and the differing views on that, I could see maybe society at large more likely to be open to, uh, you know, receiving different views because we're starting to see that that play out with what we've been told versus what's actually happening in, in the communities around us and in the headlines. They've lost the public trust, and in some cases that's good, in some cases that's bad, but uh, but that is the consequence of covering up something this huge when the evidence is just so obvious. I mean, we have picked the official story, the, the meat off its bones, now it's just a hollow skeleton there laying in the desert of American lies and manipulation, and we can all see it for what it is. Um, but the only problem is getting sort of that final absolution, that, that official stamp saying, oh, my God, we were lied to. This is what really happened, and now it's in the history books, and we can acknowledge it and move on. We were denied that by the system. If you watch the show with any regularity, I mean, you see Ted Walter come back here time and time again. We get very close to something, and then something in the system, something from the higher-ups, whether it's at the ASCE, NIST and the courts, they step in with some kind of, i got to pick my word very carefully, can't use the one I want to use, um, uh, obnoxious or ridiculous um, excuse, you know, in the case of NIST, well, they won't take us on on the science, so they're just going to challenge us on the standing. And by the way, the government can issue uh, an inaccurate report it doesn't. Uh, as long as they just issue it, it doesn't have to be accurate, they have no accountability to the people. This is what they have to resort to because they can't tackle us on the science. Now, I'm going to share my screen for a second here. I'm hoping that everything uh, works out. Hold on. We're going to do this here. Waiting for it to pop up. All right. So go ahead and add this in. All right. So uh, we are looking at a graphic here uh, that is... Uh, something that you have given to us, and it was in the article from last December. And this is very important stuff. This is sort of what you discovered here while you were getting ready for this presentation. Um, and, Brian, explain to us what we're seeing here on the screen. Right. So I looked at the corner of the building. So we can see on the right side, Tower 1 is still standing. And the corner of the building, there's a bright white line. And then we can even see the roof line, um, you know, where there's a kind of a distinct white line. And so number nine is pointing to the last time that we can see the corner of tower two as it's falling. And it's just kind of projecting out where the roof line and uh, exterior wall corner would have been seen. And so as we step back, you know, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, all the way up, uh, we're just tracing the motion, um, in just kind of snapshots of time as it falls. And what's interesting is this part of the tower that we're seeing is a part of the tower that was 
far above the impact zone. So the collapse, you know, were led to understand initiated at the collapse or at the impact zone. But the, the floors immediately above the impact zone, um, tilted a little and settled a little, but the, the free fall or I didn't actually correlate it to time to say that it's free fall, but the falling motion that we see of the top of tower two is a segment of the tower that is you know, distinct and far above um, the impact zone. I, I refer to it as, as a kink because as I was kind of tracing the motion of the tower above the impact zone, um, there's a, a time when it initially tilts together and then it, there's a, a a bright flash and a kink forms at that location. So, yeah, that flash is interesting. So, I mean, what is interesting to me is you got these red lines here, and I don't know if people can see my mouse on uh, on Streamyard or not, but you have these red lines here, and you can see that it kind of goes to the side a little bit, and you've kind of traced out the roof line. Now, uh, these are your drawings tracing the roof line and I've seen drawings done by Zdenek Bazant in his report that show in these cases that the top blocks come straight down, crush the buildings all the way to the ground. Um, yet this is in direct contradiction of that. Now, does that make a difference that you have, instead of it coming straight down, the thing is beginning to tilt? Isn't that going to make a, uh, a difference in terms of, oh, I guess the, uh, for, for lack of a better word, the weight coming down? And uh, essentially this force is supposed to be driving this whole building uh, down to the ground and turning it into powder. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. That if there was a, a block that was crushing the tower below, um, that block would need to be uniform in order for the tower below to be crushed uniformly. And so because this block was tilting, there would have been substantially more weight on the lower corner and substantially less weight on the higher corner. Um, and so it, it's unusual to, to see that the side of the building, which was probably seeing less force than it was designed to carry, meaning there was a lot of extra strength in the standing portion of the tower below, um, that, that it collapsed. So uniformly with the side of the building um, that's nearest to us in that image. Very interesting. And I took uh, myself off because I think they're starting to landscape outside. So I apologize, folks, if you can hear that. I'm going to try to mute myself here. Um, but exactly. And also, too, this uh, tilt is very important. So... Um, Please talk about that while they blow leaves outside my window, but talk about, um, you know, how this indicates internal damage as well. Right. So the, for the, the kink to occur um, at the location where it did, there must have been some sort of, you know, catastrophic failure across probably the core columns in order to, to allow the entire top to tilt the way that it did. Um, and th the challenges that we see 
the top segment tilt more than the segment that's immediately above the impact zone. So even if the core columns were compromised at the level of the impact zone, that doesn't explain why the top section tilted more. It should have been held, you know, in kind of rigid uh, uniformity and it should have all tilted the same. We should not have seen a kink. That's correct. Um, so, and let me just be very clear here. Uh, so are you, with the kink, I mean, I know on the North Tower, the antenna comes down first. That indicates that the core columns are being taken out first, as opposed to the scenario where the trusses sagged and pulled the exterior inward and this top block went like they, they, <laughs> NIST wants to claim. Um, uh, but on the, on the South Tower too, I, you notice that it begins to, the top block begins to rotate and, t- you know, turn as if it's going to fall onto the plaza below. And then there's suddenly a correction. It falls inward, indicating that there's some kind of action happening on those core columns, taking them out, allowing it to change its direction and not fall onto the plaza below, to fall essentially into the building and then disappear. Again, we don't see a top block sitting on the rubble pile at ground zero. Right. Yeah, I think the other thing that that we can notice is as the tower comes down, the the debris that's ejected looks very similar Um if you put kind of tower two and tower one side by side, it, they, the collapse progression is nearly identical. And it, it's illogical that we would have seen the debris fly equally in every direction, um, with tower two, um, because the top block was not, you know, symmetrically loading the tower. So it, they should have looked different as the collapses occurred. Yeah, well, I mean, it doesn't make any sense that you have an unprecedented event not happen not once but three times in one day as well, and especially with one of these buildings not even being hit by an airplane, because that's the knee-jerk reaction of the general public when they don't want to hear any of this. They say, well, it was hit by an airplane. What do you expect to happen? You know, well, you know, what do you expect to happen? I mean, in the case of Building 7, which wasn't hit by an airplane, there's precedent for what happened uh, or what should happen, and we continue to see precedent for that. The buildings burn for a while, then the fires get put out, and the buildings uh, can a lot of times be used again. But even though the World Trade Center, they were built to withstand airplane impacts. There was a plaque. I remember reading about this. almost fell out of my chair. There was a plaque... And one of the towers, I should narrow down whether it was the north or the south, but it essentially said, don't worry if an airplane hits this building. It's built to withstand it. It bragged about it. And here you go. Both buildings come down because of airplane impacts, and they should not have. And from everything that we're talking about today, completely contradicts the official reports that we've been given by NIST and both Tower 7 and the two Twin Towers, and at the very least, justifies a rerunning of the analysis. How can you have faith in an official story that's been proven so blatantly wrong? I mean, I mean, even at the basic premise that fires were out in the area of collapse initiation on Building 7. I mean, right there, that should be the end of it. That should be the end of the Perry Mason movie. 
right at that point. But no, we're going to keep it going. We're going to stand by this official report. Took us, what, like seven or eight years to get this out. We're not going to take another seven and eight years coming up with a new story. So uh, we're going to stand by it. That is our government, folks, but that's why we exist. So this is obviously incredibly important. Uh, we've been doing this for a number of years, and the, its importance is the reason we keep on doing this. We're trying to get this information out to professional organizations, you know, talk to the people at the grassroots, uh, at the membership level, just simply present the information, have them be able to process it. But the top leadership is resistant at every turn. It is like playing a basketball game against them you know maybe we can get the ball into the hoop maybe they block it and they start running with it down there we got to get it back i mean it shouldn't be like this it shouldn't be like this for an important issue and something involving science and common sense but here we are uh let's get your thoughts on that situation why are why are we having to fight these people right yeah no it it is something where i've i've appreciated the stance of 89 11 truth where they look at factually analyzing the evidence and basically getting to tip the scale that a new investigation is warranted. Um, and I, I suspect it's probably a, a fear as to what are the implications of that new investigation and what it's, what it would result in. Um, but yeah, I, it's from an engineering perspective to look at the way the towers collapsed and, how it is inconsistent with what you know the the NIST reports on the Twin Towers and Trade Center Seven. Um, that it it seems like if the engineering community stuck to the facts, that should be a safe place. And it's unfortunate that in light of the facts, they're unwilling to reach the conclusion. Well, therefore, that report must you know must be reanalyzed. So. Well, yeah, especially when the basic premise on which these official explanations are based are, are completely debunked in two seconds by things like the fires being out uh, in Tower 7, or you know, at least in the area of collapse initiation. Um, yeah, fear of the implications of it, fear of the consequences of this uh, being revealed, but here's my question. You know, let's say I'm a fresh young face coming in as president of the ASCE now in 2022. All that stuff happened uh, 20 years ago, a little 21 years ago. You know, I didn't do it. I didn't certify the NIST report. I'm just a new guy coming in here. You know, so what, what kind of implications are going to come on me for simply, you know, letting them talk about this? It's not, if some kind of malfeasance is exposed at NIST or... Uh, or some kind of hmm, bad work is exposed at the ASCE. It wasn't under my administration, if you want to call it that. So I don't get it. Why are we still covering up for people, a lot of which have retired and moved on 20 years ago? I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, that that is, that is a tough one. And I guess I could see the perspective of of the attendee who said, yeah, that was 20 years ago, just... Let it go, and move on. I mean, we've we've seen a couple of changes in in the code where, for a a, a high enough high rise, they want extra sticky fireproofing, and they want you know luminescent tape in the stairwells. So 
It's like, well, I guess those aren't necessarily, you know, bad, but it's, I think, perhaps overkill. Um, so I I don't know that a new investigation would take those additions to the code away. So I, I don't anticipate safety being reduced, which is one of the claims that NIST says in the reason it can't release its information. So... Well, if I was negotiating this, you can keep the luminescent tape. I'm fine with it. You know, all the punk companies making that, you can keep the money flowing. We're going to leave the luminescent tape alone. I just want the truth about what really happened that day. So don't worry about it. So if that's the only thing standing in the way, the luminescent tape uh, lobby, then we can make a backroom deal here. Uh, but no, in all seriousness, it, it is ridiculous. And, um, and, you know, again, I, I wouldn't be covering for somebody 20 years ago who I didn't even know. The truth is the truth, uh, no matter where it leads. So you see the resistance we get. Again, we document it all the time. And I want a historical record. And I don't want YouTube to think that if, uh, you know, if something ever happened to me, that these shows would just go away. Uh, we've got them stored. They're going to keep popping up everywhere. So there will be a historical record in one form or another through 9-11 Freefall in the future. But why is it still critical that we compile as much information as we can to undermine this story, build up this entire canon of evidence, debunking the National Institute of Standards and Technology and all of these organizations that back them, um, and get that in the history books, even if we never get a new investigation, which I think we will. But even if we don't, why is it important we have that record? I I, I think there is something to be said for the American will. And I, I think just being able to, you know, s- kind of support the, the public in free thinking, you know, that we're not just going to go along with what mainstream media says necessarily. We're not going to go along with what the government says necessarily that there is still freedom of thought and that, you know, let's encourage each American to be an independent thinker for themselves. I, I think that's a lot of the value that's coming out of uh, these kinds of conversations. Yeah. Well, and you know, the other thing too, I mean, I don't have any kids or anything like that. Maybe never will, but somebody's grandkids are going to look back at this and there'll be some seed that was planted by all our efforts. Right. And so people are going to wake up to other lies of the government. They're going to look back at this, realize that we were right. They may not even know it came from us if we don't say anything about it or leave our mark, but they'll say, you know, why was society so stupid? Why did everybody just go along with this? Why didn't anyone question? I want those future grandkids of somebody else to to know that people weren't. There were a lot of good people. Yes, you know, you have the people, the cell phone zombies giggling at screens out there uh, out in society, taking pride in not knowing about this and not caring. That exists, but there were also a lot of good people mixed in there doing everything that they could to get this information out. And I want all of this to be available, too, for posterity so that when people... So that when people... Uh, look back at this, they're going to know that uh, all of this evidence is there and they can study it just like people study the science of the, the previous generation and build upon it. So uh, that's why it's so important. 
Now, in your view, as an engineer, why do more engineers need to speak out about this, even if they're sort of on the fence or concerned about their careers, all that stuff? Yeah, I, I think it's a, a credibility um, issue for everyone. Um, I, I think the having an engineering degree um, gives you credibility. Having a professional engineering license. Uh, binds you to an ethical standard as a professional. And I, I think that so long as you stick to the facts and your analysis of the facts, I, I think it's, it's a place where engineers, you know, should be able to, um, you know, express their opinion. And I think that to, not broach the subject or to shy away from it is, is a disservice to the engineers that have spoken out and to the public that's looking and saying, Oh, well, in the entire country, there's only a few thousand engineers that, that have signed on with, with AE 911 True. So there must really not be anything to it. I, I would encourage an engineer who has, um, you know, considered the facts and decided that, gosh, I don't really know what happened, but if all I'm committing myself to is that a new investigation is warranted, you know, gosh, that's, that's a pretty low bar. And I, I think it's pretty easy to, to trip that threshold with the information that's available. Yeah. I mean, and I try to boil it down to that simple request because even people who staunchly stand against what we're doing have a hard time getting around that it's like well you know if, if this thing is wrong why not simply rerun the analysis to make sure you got it right i mean now they're in a position where they have to say no we have to stifle all talk of this everybody that is bringing up these questions needs to be eliminated from the internet you know i mean nobody wants to say that kind of thing it makes you sound kind of nutty and uh, dictatorish so you know it's it sort of sort of uh gets us all in the same room here at least. And, and uh, I mean, uh, asking for a new investigation or simply asking for correcting the mistakes that are, you know, everybody can agree are mistakes. If you choose not to look away from it uh, is the most reasonable thing that you can ask for. Hard to say. No, I love those. Uh, I love those, those a and B, you know, a, we win, B, we win type of situations. Always looking for those. So you were a volunteer firefighter, as you mentioned. How does that experience reflect on your desire to see the truth come out on this matter? Yeah, I guess I I don't know that I can you know compartmentalize you know one hat that I wore over another um, that causes me to pursue the truth. I, I think it's just kind of my my nature is to um, you know pursue facts and to desire justice and fairness. And um, I think from what I've seen, it is unfair and unjust that the government is unwilling to uh, basically entertain the the request for correction um, to, to claim that there's no standing. Well, who, who has better standing than, you know, a, engineers and architects from across the country. I, I don't understand. Yeah, exactly. Or 9-11 family members, because they question our standing 
there too when the families get involved. In fact, the families got involved in uh, this lawsuit here. And you know what? I want the government to know this. Those family members are the ones that you failed. All right. Even if you're a government bureaucrat and you believe the official story, I'm not even talking about a cover up. I'm talking about like you're standing against this because you really believe this nonsense that NIST says. Right. Your government still failed those people. You people still failed them. Uh, you know, George Bush, who they were holding up as a hero after September 11th. OK, even if you believe the official story, he didn't do his job. He didn't protect the American people. He's not a hero. He's a failure. An absolute failure. So those people you owe something to, and if they have reasonable questions about this event, then you owe it to them to address it, not address it in this dismissive, uh, look the other way kind of way that you've been dealing with NIST, but with, uh, with actual answers by actually taking on these questions. You won't do it because you can't. But let's not pretend that they don't have standing because your number one job as the federal government is to protect the safety and security of the American people, especially here on their home soil. And you didn't do that that day. So we deserve to have all of our reasonable questions answered about this event for the next 100 years because you failed. Um, All right. So question I've been asking people repeatedly ever since we asked it of our supporters why is 9-11 still important to you here 21 years later? Because it's all I hear uh, from people who don't want to talk about this. Oh, it was 21 years ago. Move on. New things happening. We're in the 21st century. Well, I guess 9-11 was the 21st century also. Um, you don't think of it as being. You think it as being sort of an extension of the 90s. But, no, it was the 21st century, and here we are now deeper into it. Why is it still important? Right, yeah. I, I think it goes back to the... Uh, accountability piece, um, that, you know, if, if I do something wrong, I'm going to be held accountable for it. And, um, I, I think that a similar thing should hold true that the citizens should be able to hold their government accountable. Um, and that it's not that we're trying to just find, well, there's a majority of people that, that feel that it's like, no, there is, cause and evidence that has been compiled, developed, analyzed, and presented. This is a a thoughtful package that's been given to basically justify the call for a new investigation. And I think that if we allow 9-11, the official story, to stand despite all of these glaring errors that people could recognize by just looking at the video themselves, um, you know, how much more, um, I guess, you know, rights are we going to give over to the government where we'll just, you know, continue to go along with, well, because it's not right, but it's because the government said so we got to do it. Um, I, I, I think letting the government know that we're not giving them free reign and, you know, empowering the American people to, um, basically take a stand for themselves and their independence. I, I think that is why it is important. Yeah, I think that we protect the rights of every American citizen by bringing up this issue, not just when it comes to 9-11 and informational rights and standing rights and things like this, but just overall, overall, because... My God, you let them get away with something like this. You know, you let uh, Shyam Sunder getting interviewed by Alan Reese 
saying that you can see that uh, the steel coming out of the South Tower before it comes down is silver. He's saying you can see that in the video. And then you see it for yourself and it's bright orange. You know, just change reality. Tell you that you're seeing something that you're not. It reminds me of this Kids in the Hall sketch where they have a, a an accused murderer on the stand and the lawyer says, so you were standing over the body with a knife at the time. No, I wasn't even though it's all documented and everything. So the guy's whole defense is just to deny every single fact that the lawyer is telling them. That's what NIST is doing. They just, you know, if something is one way, they tell you the opposite. If they, if there's something that contradicts their story, they just pretend it doesn't exist. They just say, oh, well, our story still jives. That's essentially what it boils down to. You let them get away with that, it will be unstoppable. You're going to have uh, every crook and criminal being attracted to power and, and office because they can. They'll know what they can get away with here, you know, with this precedent. And somebody needs to be the voice of reason out there. And golly, that's going to be us, if nobody else. So we're going to stick to this issue, of course, not anything else. But we're going to uh, keep on beating the drum on this. They can't; ju- they aren't going to wear us out. We're going to keep going for as long as we can. Uh, so thank you so much. I want to know: Do you have any final thoughts, final words of wisdom that you would like to impart on our audience, or things that you would like to check out and? Uh, uh, basically anything to add before we close out the show. Yeah, I, I think what was interesting to me was the experience of beginning this investigation of or analysis of Tower 2, um, that you know there is material at your fingertips. There are tools at your fingertips. You don't have to be, I mean, I'm not a video production engineer. I just kind of, extracted screenshots and drew in PowerPoint and then just overlaid the slide. So it was, um, there are ways that, you know, on your own, you can do your own analysis without having to rely on what somebody else said. Certainly they might give you kind of a, a an idea of how you might go about it, but, you know, there's opportunity for you to basically, you know, see for yourself. So that'd be what I have to say. Well, there you go, and that's a good final thought to end on. Brian, thank you so much for stepping forward, for doing our event uh, on September 9th. By the way, folks, that's available on YouTube. We've got a lot of views on that, and it's a lot of views for the fact that they're trying to censor us. I mean, that's what we're fighting, too, is this massive invisible algorithm uh, that uh, tries to keep 9-11 truth subjects squelched and keep our stuff from... Uh, really getting out there. So yeah, you can find it if you're specifically looking for it, but newbies coming in, they, they want to keep new people from waking up to this too. Cause look at, look at what happened when people had freedom on the internet before. We can't let that happen again. Good God. But anyway, you can watch that forbidden truth and Brian is right there giving a excellent presentation on it. So thank you so much for that. And of course, for coming on 9-11 Freefall today. Yeah. Thank you, Andy. My pleasure. All right, folks, there you go. Another 9-11 free fall. As always, you can tell us uh, if you have any suggestions on how to improve the show. But for my part, this is Andy Steele saying we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.